You know, what's interesting about Easter Sunday, it's, it's the day that um, Christians around the world, we celebrate that Jesus, a real person, came into the world. He lived, he died, but he resurrected from the grave, and it changes everything. And that's why every year we're reminded of this reality, but it, really this reality is what informs the entire kind of faith. Um, now, I realize there are some people, maybe you're not from a Christian background, and so welcome. Some people have this belief that somehow Christianity is just a myth. Like it's a story that was conjured up somehow so that people could have this crutch that they, they can hold on to. Or some people think, oh, this is what Christianity is. It's basically kind of a, a bunch of rules. It's an ideology that's somehow supposed to govern our lives. Now, while there might be different elements of both of those things, at the end of the day, when it really comes down to it, it's what, what Christian Christianity is really about. It's a story of a person who really lived, like a historical account of this person that we claim to follow. And part of these stories that were given to us are these gospel accounts, these historical accounts of who Jesus is. Now, there's something unique about uh, the account that was just read to us in John chapter 20, and we're actually gonna go through it um, one by one and see these unique details that talk about the historicity of really what happened. So check this out, John chapter 20. Look at what it says. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene. Now notice this name is given because as a historical account, it's like, hey, Hey, if you have questions about what happened, there's Mary. You can talk to her, ask her whatever she thinks about what she witnessed. Now look what it says. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now in the ancient world, the way that those tombs worked is stones would be rolled across into a groove in front of the passageway of this tomb. Now those stones that blocked the entranceway were generally speaking one to two tons So we're talking about these massive, heavy, weighty kinds of stones. These weren't things that you normally kind of dislodged. And and certainly no one dislodged it from internally. So if you can imagine, Mary sees this and look at what happens. So she came running to Simon Peter. Again, another name is used because if you have questions about this, hey, call up Simon, ask him what he thinks. Of course, they didn't have phones back then. And the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and they said this. By the way, the one Jesus loved is John, the one who's writing this. I love this. He refers to himself as, by the way, Jesus' favorite. That's me, guys. I'm about to be, you know, humble brag about it there. Um, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. This is the only logical conclusion that Mary comes to. Someone must have taken this. Uh, Someone moved the stone miraculously and have taken his body. So Peter and the other disciple, which is John, started for the tomb. Both were running. I love this. Even just this little detail. Both were running, but the other disciple, in other words, himself, outran Peter, much better athlete, and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in the strips of linen lying there. But did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So do you understand? Like, basically, in this tomb, there's only the linens and the cloth that are there. Now, check out what happens. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and he believed They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. It's almost like he's recollecting what happened, right? He's like, we still didn't, had no idea what was happening here, but we believed somehow that something miraculous had just taken place. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Now why is she crying? Jesus has already died and 
as we've seen in previous weeks to today, Mary is someone who is deeply close to Jesus. And so she's weeping because she's wondering what in the world is going on. And you'll see this in her questioning. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? And look at what she says. They have taken my Lord away. This is the only logical conclusion that she can come to. Someone has taken him, uh, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Um, Go to the next slide. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Now, this is Jesus. Sorry, I skipped a couple of verses. Why is it that you, who is it that you were looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, so here she is. She just has no grid by which Jesus is alive. But now she asks this question, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And notice what happens. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She hears his voice, her, his designation for her, and immediately she recognizes it. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And look at what happens. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. She's the first eyewitness. And here she is. She's like, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Mary Magdalene is the first eyewitness and the first preacher, the first evangelist, the first person to tell other people that Jesus is actually alive. Now, one of the questions about the historicity of this account is actually examined in a book by Richard Bauckham, who's a scholar in Scotland. And he he talks about, in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Now, this book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, goes over how do we know that these historical accounts are even reliable? And one of the things that he he mentions is the fact that Mary Magdalene, as a woman, is the first eyewitness, is a sign that it is credible. Now, you're wondering, like, why is that? Is it because women are more credible than men? Yes, but, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, While that's true, it's because in the ancient world, uh, in the court of law, and there's actually been different inscriptions that have actually commented on this, how women in the ancient world were deemed as uncredible witnesses, In other words, women, they would not, whenever they were invited into a court to give testimony about something, they were seen as liars, as people who could not be trusted. Of course, this was a patriarchal society, which demeaned women, looked down on them. And so here's what Bauckham basically states. He says, if someone were to make up this story, if you were going to make up a story of the resurrection and make it credible and believable so that a worldwide movement would start, the way that you would do it is you would tell this story. And the first eyewitness was a man, a good, reliable man. But Bauckham actually states, but instead, it's a woman. Now, why is it a woman who's designated as the first eyewitness? Because it was Mary. (laughs) Because it really was Mary. And so Bauckham, he argues that this is how we know that it's reliable. It's not like people are making up these stories to try to make it more credible. Instead, these people are basically telling it like they experienced it. In another historical account in the book of Acts, it says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. And as a result, a movement would start that the resurrected Jesus 
basically showed himself alive. Now, you got to understand this, the context in which this was birthed. Like, this is like Jesus is a, a carpenter. He's from Nazareth, which is basically this no-name town in the shadow of the Roman Empire, which has the largest military, the largest cultural influence, the largest might as a world power. These Christians have no social capital. They have no influence. They're an oppressed minority. Uh, They don't have social media to somehow get the word out. There is nothing. And yet, somehow, this Christian movement spread. Now, here's what's interesting. Because most people, especially in the ancient Roman world, they looked at these Christians like, this is like some silly, moronic, you know, stupid kind of movement. And in fact, here's evidence of like a Roman historian named Tacitus who lived in the first century. He was actually the preeminent historian during that time. And Tacitus writes, look at what he writes. When he's, he's writing about Nero, the emperor Nero, a fire befalls Rome and Nero conveniently blames the Christians for it and thus starts a wave of persecution over Christians. Now, here's what's interesting is Tacitus, he writes in his observations about who these Christians are. Notice these little clues. Check this out. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt of the fire that broke out in Rome and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. There it is. It's evidence of how this movement started. Now, look at what he says. Christus, from whom the name had its origin. He's talking about Jesus here. Tacitus says, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. So in other words, it's basically saying, yeah, yeah, this Jesus person who these Christians are following, he really did die at the hands of Pontius Pilate. And notice what it says, and a most mischievous superstition that's checked for the moment, again, broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. He's talking about how this breakout of Christians and their abominations, it breaks out even in Rome. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Ah, these Christians. Let's just get rid of these guys. I mean, who are these people? No name. Christus followers. Who was executed. In this inglorious manner, there's an inscription that was actually discovered, um, and it's dated probably around 200 AD. It's graffiti art that was found on Palatine Hill in Rome. Check out this graffiti art. Um, You can see it on the left, and then it's more clearly kind of deciphered on the right. This graffiti art is actually, um, it's called Alexemenos Graffitio, which basically means a graffiti, and it's actually commenting Um, as people were studying this, what it basically says on the right, you can see some of the lettering at the bottom. It says, Alexemenos Sabate, which basically means worships, or yeah, worships or gives worth to his God, Theon, worships his God. Now, it's made up, and presumably, Alexemenos is basically that guy on the left. And notice the depiction of the cross. The depiction of the cross is basically a naked donkey with a donkey head with its backside showing. And it's basically like, ah, Alex Semenos, what an idiot, worshiping his God. 
I mean, this is what people believed about Christians. People to be scorned and scoffed at. Now, what's stunning is that it makes sense because the Christians were the lowest dregs of society compared to Rome. Rome had all the power, all the weightiness. Christians, who are they? Some Jewish carpenter? This thing's going to fizzle out so easily. Let's just blame this fire on them. And so what would result in the early parts since Jesus' resurrection is Christians were burned at the stake. They were persecuted. They were told that, say Caesar is Lord. Don't say Jesus is Lord. And if they didn't, they were, be, they were spectacles to the broader Roman Empire of just how silly and stupid they really were. Yeah, now, here's what's stunning. What's stunning is, check out this graph. Because in this graph, here, here's what happens, right? Jesus resurrects from the grave, 40 AD. And look at what happens. Uh, the Christian population estimated is around 1,000 people at that time. Just 60 years later, 100 AD, that number in the midst of bloodshed and persecution, it actually grows. It grows to about 7,000 to 10,000 AD. Then another century later, with even more persecution, even more deadlier kind of accusations against Christian, it, it actually grows exponentially to 200,000. By the time the 300 AD run, comes around, and by 300 AD, some of the greatest Christian persecutions that they would ever experience befall them under Decius and others, sometimes called the Great Persecution. But by this time, even in the midst of them having no social capital, no Instagram accounts or TikTok, somehow this movement called Christianity grows to five to six million. Now, here's a question. How in the world did this happen? Because you would understand if they had some sort of huge financial backing behind them, right? Who, who's the secret angel investor who made this thing happen, huh? Who, who's... Who's the one with the military strength that somehow got behind this Jesus fellow? It was none of those things. Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, one of the things he, he outlines is he, t- he talks about how the only thing Christians were armed with was this belief. Jesus really rose again from the dead. And the, because Jesus rose again from the dead, these Christians would be known for their foolish, silly, stupid love. They would care for the sick. They would invite people into their homes. They'd begin to practice loving one's enemies, forgiving those who persecute you. How in the world did this Christian movement continue on and move forward? Now, this is astounding. Now, check out, here's an image of the Roman Colosseum. And the Roman Colosseum, uh, in 72 AD, Vespasian, who was the emperor at that time, started construction of what's now really a modern-day marvel of this Colosseum. It could seat anywhere between 50,000 to 80,000 people. It was later uh, completed in 80 AD under Titus. It's this remarkable place. Now, the Colosseum was a place that was really the pinnacle of Roman power and glory. 
in fact, what often was emulated in this Colosseum was enactments or reenactments of Rome conquering these surrounding territories. It was a way to show everyone else, this is how Rome has conquered all these different areas in the world of the known world. And so here's an image of gladiatorial games, for instance, that were done there as well. It was this place of entertainment and spectacle. It was this place that could highlight just how powerful Rome is. Uh, history actually tells us that it was also a place, and if we go to the next slide, it was also a place where Christians were persecuted. Some believe that Christians were burned at the stake inside the Colosseum. People would scoff and scorn and be entertained by seeing Christians persecuted and killed for their faith in the middle of the Colosseum. Because guess what? They're Christians. They somehow believe that this Jesus fellow rose again from the dead. This Jesus of Nazareth from this no-name place. He's not even Roman. You know, like today, if you were to think, like, think about places of influence. Like, he's not even from Manhattan. He's from New Jersey. You know, or, you know, or he's, he's like, like, really? Christians? Come on. You know what's stunning is if, if you were to actually visit the Roman Colosseum today, you'd actually see this. You'd see a cross. You'd see a cross in the middle of the Colosseum. Empires would rise and fall Emperors would come and go. And yet the good news of this Jewish carpenter who really died but really lived would endure forever. Friends, there is a cross in the middle of the Colosseum How in the world did Christianity grow in the midst of peril and difficulty and bloodshed? What if it's because Jesus really did resurrect from the grave? And because he resurrected from the grave, it changes everything. Now, to circle back to this story of Mary, notice at the beginning of of John chapter 20, check out what happens. Look at what it says. It says, early on the first day of the week, And I love this little clue. It says, while it was still dark, this is when Mary is going to the tomb. You know, I can imagine Mary, who's friends with Jesus, who has experienced the death of Jesus and is so confused. And I can imagine here she is. All she wants to do is commemorate Jesus' passing. She wants to somehow um, honor his death. And while it's still dark, early in the morning. Little does she know that something has happened that would forever change human history. 
But all she knows is the darkness. All she knows is the feeling of confusion and discombobulation and why am I even going here? And I can't believe Jesus died. And yet on the other side of this verse, there's an empty tomb. Jesus has been resurrected. You know, I can't help but think this is kind of a metaphor for many of us in life. You know, we, this is what happens. We, perhaps for you today, you walk in here and there's this feeling of darkness maybe that you've been carrying. A feeling of hopelessness. A feeling of like, I'm not sure if I can make it past this depression. I'm not sure if I can make it past this kind of anxiety related to my future. I'm not sure if I can make it past this kind of broken relationship that exists right now. And yet, here's what Easter Sunday is all about, is that there's a reality that is bigger and above even your own darkness. And if you can just keep believing and pressing in, there's resurrection on the other side. There's a God who makes dead things come to life. There's a God who takes broken things and makes them whole. There's a God who takes our most hopeless, dire situations and gives us life. And if you're looking for evidence, friends, there's a cross in the middle of the Colosseum. There's a God who's alive, who's resurrected, and it's the reason why we gather, because this is what God does. He takes these impossible situations and makes them possible because that is who he is. What would it look like for each one of us to really believe this, that resurrection hope and power is real? Uh, here's what I'd love to do. I'd love to invite my friend Peter Rizcala to come up here, and he's just going to share his own story with God and how resurrection power and hope has become real to him. Give it up for Peter, everyone. Thank you. Um, Happy afternoon, happy Easter. Um, thank you guys for all being here. Uh, so my name is Peter. Uh, I've been attending Hope for close to a year now. Um, I was originally born in Cairo, Egypt. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's a predominantly Muslim area. So when Drew's talking about the persecution of if Christians, um, I kind of grew up seeing this with my own people. Um, I grew up in the Coptic church. Or I was baptized Coptic. Uh, we would go every now and then when I was growing up. Um, we immigrated to the United States when I was two years old. Um, moved to New Jersey about 10 miles away from here, despite what Drew just said. New Jersey brings some great people. Um, so, yeah, we moved here from New, uh, we moved to New Jersey. Um, it's kind of in and out of, like, every now and then my parents would take me to church. Um, to a Coptic church. For those of you who don't know, you could kind of think of it as like the Egyptian version of Catholicism. A little bit different, but to make things easy. Um, I grew up, I had a pretty happy childhood overall. I was kind of on the borderline of obesity, though, growing up, um, which led to like my own insecurities, whatever other words you could throw in there. Um, and, you know, overall, though, had friends, lived a decently happy life. 
Uh, when I was 17, my father actually had a heart attack and what should have been a surgery out of the hospital within a week. Um, his organs actually started to all fail and that turned into a six month in and out of ICUs, other forms of rehab. Um, during that time, my family kind of came together. Um, we would pray all the time. We would, you know, I was praying all the time. Um, and there was times where doctors would tell us, like, your father won't make it past the night, and he would make it past the night, surely enough. Um, everything was kind of cool up until April 14th, which was about six months into it. Um, I, he had to be intubated one more time, and I looked at him in the face that day, and I was like, this is no way for anyone to live. And for the first time, my prayers transitioned to, um, instead of don't take my father from me, do what's best for him. And within 12 hours, we were getting a phone call telling us, you know, his time's coming to an end. Um, that was probably my first interaction with something higher than me, um, that I truly believed there was something more. But also, I was super angry and depressed, and you could only imagine how I feel, the guilt I felt from what had even happened, the shame I felt. Uh, and to make matters worse, I had this crazy idea at the time that boys and men don't cry. I have no idea where I learned that one from. Uh, so you could imagine how much I suppressed everything in. The only way it would really come out throughout the years was if I drank a little too much and had an emotional moment. Um, on top of that, I went away to college a few months after the passing of my father, and Superbad was the number one movie at that time, so you could only imagine how my college career was. Um, I didn't do too great in college. When I first graduated, I got a degree in kinesiology. It was really hard for me to get a job. It was just insanely depressing. I couldn't see a way out of anything. I was filled with a lot of anger. I was filled with a lot of animosity. My mother, after my father passed away, started her started clinging on to Jesus, and she would talk to me about the importance of a relationship with Jesus. I don't think I mentioned this, but I thought Jesus was Santa Claus when I was little, where he was just judging me if I did things that were good or bad just to send me to heaven or hell. I didn't understand what the purpose of any of this was. Um, but my mom would try to talk to me about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and I would just curse her off. Um, I couldn't speak to my mother for more than five minutes without losing my mind and my temper. Um, when I was about 26, 27, so this was back in 2017, I kind of started to realize that I was the devil in my own life, and I just couldn't be miserable anymore. So... I was pretty heavy, like I said, and I started focusing on my weight and trying to fix my insecurities that way. Um, throughout that time, I started to also realize the importance of keeping a positive attitude towards everything and working on my spiritual health in one way or another, uh, whether that was meditating or finding something out there. Um, I had a lot of friends. I was in the alternative health world. I had a lot of friends that had new age thoughts, Buddhist thoughts, things like that, that would constantly talk to me, give me books to read based on certain things. Um, and what I realized early on was a lot of what they were telling me was exactly what my mom was telling me, just with Jesus removed from it. Um, so one example I use is in the neuroscience world, they talk about rewiring your brain, where you have these bad habits and you have to start thinking about things differently. 
Um, I compare that to Romans 12, 2, where Paul tells us to renew our brains, to renew our minds in Christ. Um, so around 2018, I started engaging with the Bible a lot more, um, even biblical history. If it wasn't for the martyrs that passed away, who knows if I'd actually believe in this or not. But um, in 2018, I came to the conclusion that Jesus was a living historical figure. He died, and he had to have resurrected. Um, I started really getting to know Jesus, working on kind of a relationship with him. And life got better. Um, I was a lot happier. I had a lot more confidence in me. A lot of the lies I believed about myself started to disappear. And then in 2021, I hit another storm. And at that point, I kind of knew I had two options, either cling on to Jesus or go back to <laughs> my bad habits from the past. Um, and don't get me wrong, one or two times I took a step to the side and his love pulled me right back in. He wouldn't let me go. Um, and it was around that time that I realized Jesus is still alive. Um, he, he interacted with me the whole way through. He really pulled me out of a really dark place. I learned that he speaks back <laughs> at times. Um, and even sometimes in the silence, that's a way of speaking. Ooh, I lost my train of thought, sorry. Um, yeah, so it's been a really long journey. Um, around 20, about a year ago, after a year of me clinging on to Jesus and my storm kind of coming to a calm, um, Jesus led me to the Alpha course that Nico spoke about at the beginning. Um, so shout outs to the whole Alpha family here. Raul, I see you. Nico in the back. Andrew, Ophelia, I saw you earlier. Um, and Alpha was a great way for me to realize there's other people that have similar views as me and really connect with others. Um, Drew always invited me to service on Sunday, and I've been coming to most services on Sundays as long as I'm in New York for the last year or so. Um, there's so many people I could thank here for like helping support this throughout the years. Um, I could also talk about all the things that God has given me throughout the years and everything I have, whether it's something physical, something emotional or friendship-wise, that was all given to me through him. Um, but I'd rather talk about the things that he actually took away from me, which was the anger, the pain, the insecurities, the depression, the anxiety. Um, that's what was really life-changing to me, um, that I was able to get pulled out of that pit that Drew spoke about earlier, especially when I didn't think that that was ever going to change. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, the most remarkable thing about all this is, as Drew said, this was just a Jew from Nazareth carpenter, but yet I'm a firstborn Egyptian who would have died in the Passover, and I'm here to talk to you about how this Jewish carpenter died 2,000 years ago so his blood could be on my door as a firstborn Egyptian so I could be saved. 2,000 years later. Thank you, and God bless. Thanks, Peter. Amen. Hey, hey I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. I'd love for you to stand with me at this time. You know, this is the beauty of the Easter story, is that it intersects with all of our lives at one point or another, and really today, 
is an invitation for this story to intersect with your life. Maybe perhaps for you, you've just been kind of going about your life, and, but there's this whole reality of the resurrection that somehow today is like, well, what if it was true? Like, how would it change your life? Um, and meanwhile, there's others of us, maybe you're in that season where it kind of like where it says that Mary, while it was still dark, and you, that's what it feels like, what life is like. And today is a day where you can be, you can be reminded that resurrection is available on the other side. <laughs> At the reality that he is alive, that it changes everything. And that this is who God is. God who loves us, is for us, is powerful, yet passionate for you, for me, for all of us. So we're gonna close with this song together as we sing out about what Jesus has done, that we would celebrate the power that is found in his name and in what he has done.